I don't really know how to open champagne. I think, hold on. Oh god. Are you ready? Are you sure we shouldn't put something over it? <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> it smells kind of good. This is a sour beer that I really like that Eddie is probably gonna hate. It kind of looks like dirt. Okay, well I didn't say that about the drinks that you wanted to drink. <laughs> be here for us. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Super sour. You don't like it? <sighs> okay. Wait, so should we Yeah. Just keep preparing these? Yeah. Alright. So welcome back to It's Going to Be Okay. This is Grace Taylor. And Eddie Grom. And uh, we've, we've been delayed a few months. A I long think. time. Yeah. yeah. We said that we were going to do this monthly, and we didn't. Monthly is kind of hard. Well, we were both on PQ. Eddie was on PQ. I'm now on PQ. And that's really just a mess. Yeah. So that makes it difficult. But we're here. We're here. We just had bubble tea, and now we're drinking sour beer. Duchess de... Do you know how to pronounce this? Bourgogne? Bourgogne. I don't know. <laughs> Duchess de Bouillon. It's it, it looks legit. It's Flemish. It's from Whole Foods. Um, we had a nice day. We went surfing, and then we met all the new interns who I hope are listening to this. Hi, interns. Um, for those who are, I guess that for the interns who have never heard this before, this is our podcast that uh, is meant to be like mildly educational, but also just mostly. To hear ourselves talk. Yeah, exactly. It's to make try to make people hear us talk to hear ourselves <laughs> talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I learned today that David Dillon hasn't listened yet, but he has it unread in his email so that he knows to come back to it. Well, that's very hurtful, <laughs> David. <laughs> David. If you're listening. Um, so I think, so as usual, we'll start with the medical topic, which Grace has prepared. And I only I've briefly heard what we'll be talking about. And then I will launch into a very interesting phenomena to discuss for the second part of the episode. I think in our initial conception of this podcast, we were going to switch who does the medical topic. <laughs> and then ultimately, it was realized that, that Eddie had no interest in preparing a medical topic of any kind. I have no interest in medicine, so I don't know what... Uh, but no, but I do think you're particularly good at teasing out teaching points. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. I hope you won't be disappointed because our this topic will be good today, mm-hmm. I think. The one I prepared. The other issue with us switching is that Eddie didn't think any of my non-medical topics were sufficiently non-medical. Yeah, I mean, they were a little, like, nerdy. Like, one was, like, the mechanics of a plane falling apart or something. Okay, well, separate. We well, should, else, uh, yeah. It's super interesting. Yeah, it is. All right. Okay, um, anyway. So what are we talking about today? So, okay, so I'm in the, the pediatric ICU currently, um, and so we're seeing a lot of kids with a lot of chronic problems. Um, I think kids make everyone super anxious, like very sick kids, because we see them very rarely, um, and they also have weird problems. All of us are, unfortunately spend most of our time with adults and are very comfortable with like 
the critical diseases of adults, but children have weird things happen to them. They have funny heart diseases, and it's difficult to remember the physiology of them. They're, like, a little bit intimidating. So this topic is kind of a pediatric topic, but it's also an adult topic. Um, So the case was this eight-year-old girl who had a history of pulmonary hypertension. Um, She also had asthma um, and was like an X-23 weaker or something. It seems like a bad trio. Yeah, absolutely. It might have been 27, but it was young in any case, little ex-tiny bean, um, who was... So, sorry to... And I don't know if you're planning on talking about this, but pulmonary hypertension in kids, is it a... Like, why do kids get it? Yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, a, a lot of it... Well, so there are, like... There are five, the, like five groups of pulmonary hypertension in adults that we think about, which I didn't memorize or write down. Um, but basically, it can be idiopathic. It can be due to LV failure. It can be due to chronic lung disease. It can be due to thromboembolic disease. And there's one more that I'm forgetting. So like everything else, you look that up while I'm while I'm talking. In kids, basically, you get it due to. Um, chronic heart disease and chronic lung disease, um, you get the idiopathic version. You rarely get due to um, like thromboembolic disease or due to left heart failure, as you right. might imagine. Do you have the five groups? Up? Uh, yeah, I'm pulling it up. Uh, group five blood clots. Oh, there's blood disorders. Did you mention that one? You, like thromboembolic disease? No, like separate from thromboembolic, there's like, it says, um, like types of anemia, which I'm assuming like sickle cell anemia maybe, and like sarcoidosis. I think this is just basically... Is that the everything else? It's like a catch-all, yeah, yeah everything else group. Miscellaneous. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool, so those are... Uh, and so in this, in this young girl, it was probably that she has horrible lung disease because of her prematurity. I think so. Um, unfortunately, she was so sick that I never, we never did, we never got to, like, look back through her notes and, like, figure out more of her history. It was, she was basically critically ill the whole time we had her, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. So, she actually came in as a ROSC. So, she had arrested in the field... Um, she had some vague history of like maybe a viral respiratory syndrome, maybe some diarrhea for Sorry, a few how days. old was she? Eight. Oh. Um, and was like, but was like not super far from her baseline, but had seemed kind of more tired to parents and then arrested at home. It was witnessed. CPR was started. EMS continued CPR. She came to an outside hospital um, that did not have. Uh, a pediatric ICU and certainly did not have a pediatric PH team um, there I believe was there or in the field she was intubated um, they got ROSC somewhere along the line and so she was transferred to us intubated um, and in like florid shock requiring multiple vasopressors wow so the that's a scary well, that's uh, first of all, that's very scary for the outside hospital. Yeah, I I just took our annoying EMS pretest that we have to do, um, but it just, it made me realize like how many resources we have in the city. Mm-hmm. So if someone like 
if someone has a cardiac arrest and then gets like circulation back, they they actually have like five hospitals to choose from that are like expertly equipped to deal with those things. Yeah. Um, and I imagine in wherever she's from, like they probably just did like they just go to the nearest place, and mm-hmm. if they don't even have a pediatric ICU. Right. What are they? I mean, right. What are how they are supposed they supposed to do? To like this yeah, that's just really yeah. scary. And that's why, and that like being in the PICU at, at Mission Bay, like you get we get a lot of transfers in from like super sick kids who went to whatever nearest community hospital, and it makes you realize that sometimes I think that like if I'm at an outside at a community hospital, I'm not gonna see these chronically ill kids that come to Mission Bay, but you are. Yeah. You're gonna see them. You're just not gonna have the resources you need to deal with it. Yeah, you're gonna like focus on getting them on a plane as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I think that some of, even though I'm not actually sure what of this happened in the field and what happened in the ED, um, but some of the, like the, a patient with pulmonary hypertension who's in extremis and is shocky or hypoxic is kind of one of the scarier things that can come into an ED, I think, um, because it like, it's just, you're basically walking a very tight uh, like a, a very you're on like a tightrope between t- a couple of different extremes and going either way in one direction can kill the patient very quickly. Mm. Um, what are like what kind of issues do you think about when you think about people coming in and extremists with pulmonary hypertension? Well, I guess I haven't dealt with it that much, but I would imagine that you are worried about like it's like you said it's a fine balance between like you're trying you want them to have enough cardiac output, but like you would be worried about like flooding their lungs with with resuscitation um and i imagine there's also like the component of right heart strain and and like problems with uh i don't know i mean i guess you'd have to choose your pressors differently which i'm sure you're going to get into but i feel like i would i would sort of think of it in broad strokes kind of like a heart failure patient in in cardiac or like in a shock situation but i i imagine there's much different a lot of differences in how you would approach it. So I don't know. I'm interested to hear you talk about this because this is an area that I don't feel comfortable with. Yeah, totally. So you're, you're touching on like a bunch of the major issues, which is, uh, fluid balance, optimizing fluid balance. Um, you mentioned also like optimizing right ventricular contractility, um, which is a super important consideration. Actually, before we get into the mess of like the hemodynamics and what's relevant, we can back up and talk about like why this happens to people. So I actually didn't like hadn't thought about this very much until this case, but um, you basically when you have pulmonary hypertension, you can get into this cycle of pH crisis where you start you have something that sets your hemodynamics off balance and then your pulmonary vasculature gets constricted and then your right ventricle has higher afterload and starts failing more and then you're not perfusing well enough so everything gets worse and then you get hypoxic so your PVR goes up even higher there're like a million diagrams when you read about this just that just show this like spiral of death wow. so a lot of different things can trigger it um, any like things that we typically think of cr- triggering any chronic disease can trigger it, including like just infection, having some insult to your lung disease, especially if lung disease is the underlying reason you have pH, if you're hypervolemic, if you're hypovolemic, um, and then two big considerations that are kind of in addition that we don't think about normally for other chronic diseases, one of which is agitation. 
So children, when kids freak out as they are wont to do, um, they can, like, freaking out and screaming will increase your PVR, can actually trigger pH kids to go into pH crisis. Wow, that's so scary. Yeah, so we had, like, we actually had another kid who had pH and just had, like, viral gastro, but had a lot of, like, cramping belly pain, and he would start to freak out when he, like, felt this pain. So he was in the ICU on a Presidex strip. Just, just to, for his viral to get gastro. Him the gastro, exactly. Just to make him chill enough to wow. deal with the gastro, so that he wouldn't crazy. go into pH crisis. So that was like that's an important consideration. They talk all, all the pediatrics residents were talking about how like try to calm the kid down, which is like humorous to me because my skills at calming down children are so so poor. I find children and psychotic people find me to be very agitating. <laughs> so, well, I just learned that patients don't think I'm a real doctor because I have blood on my shoes. So, I mean, they're not—they're not wrong to have that criticism. We're looking at Eddie's shoes right now, and it's really like a horror show. <laughs> I did—I put a chest tube in the other day, and literally 700 mLs of blood came out directly on my shoes. <laughs> At least and it wasn't wearing them. At least it wasn't the trauma attending shoes. <laughs> oh, I know. And Grace one time dropped a placenta on the chief OB resident. We don't shoes. have to talk about that now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, go ahead. Sorry. Anyway, oh yes, where was I? Um, and then the other, the other big trigger for pH crisis is um, a disruption in a continuous infusion of a pH drug. So uh, people out in the wild who live with pH often are, can have pumps that, um, remodulin is a really common one, that is a, it's a prostaglandin analog, and they'll be continuously getting either sub-Q or IV remodulin right. to keep their pH under control. And if they have pump failure, like the little device failure, for one reason or another, they can go into severe pH crisis from that. So that's something else to think about and be terrified about. Yeah. Yeah, I remember so many kids on PICU would just be there f- because they couldn't handle the pumps on the floor. Like, they would just be normal kids with, with just whatever illness, and they have to be there to make sure that's functioning. So in managing these kids, like or people rather, um, if they're coming in hypotensive and hypoxic, that's kind of like the ultimate scary scenario. Um, I th- and remind me, are these kids always a little hypoxic? Like, some of their baseline sets... Are, no. They're not? So, they're... I will have to confirm this, because I am, like, 75% sure. There are lots of, like, chronically ill kids that will tolerate lower sats, but because of the negative effect of hypoxia and pH, all these kids are supposed to be at, like, 100%. Um, and we can... Let me write down that we're going to look that up. Okay. So... When the, there are, I think that it's easiest to think about what to do by thinking about the physiology um, because it's just a little bit counterintuitive to like our knee jerk reactions yeah. to like, let's say adults in this kind of extremis or rather adults without pH. Um, so one big, the big, like the major tenet, if you only remember one thing, remember you need to decrease pulmonary vascular resistance. So if you're doing an intervention that will increase PVR, it is probably a bad intervention. It's going to work against you. And, wait, and so is she in obstructive shock? Like, are we thinking about this in terms... Like, why, why... What is the shock? Mm-hmm. I guess it could be anything. It could be sepsis, like a normal, like, shock kid plus pulmonary hypertension. But then, like, are you also describing shock from the pulmonary hypertension itself where, like, there's just, like, bad 
output through the lungs and the and and basically there's no circulating flow. Yeah, totally. So we had to we didn't know when she first came in, um, but our suspicion based on her course, um, it seems most likely that she was just basically in cardiogenic shock primarily from RV failure. Okay. So basically her pulmonary vascular resistance had increased so much that her RV didn't work. Um, and then to her, she was unable to ultimately like make forward flow and was very hypotensive because of that. Um, so the big, so big, big things to remember, do not increase PVR. Um, so for, there are a lot of physiologic parameters that we can optimize to not increase PVR. Um, the one of them we've kind of already alluded to, which is hypoxia. Um, when you're hypoxic, your pulmonary vasculature clamps down. Also, when you're hypercarbic, your, your PVR will also increase. So avoiding hypoxia, get these people on high flow oxygen immediately. They should be getting 100%. Um, this is not someone, if they're intubated later in the ICU, this is not someone that you're like tolerating low oxygen tension in. Um, they should always be at 100%, basically. Yeah. Like you're giving 100% oxygen, you're, yeah, and then you're maybe even hyperventilating them a little. Bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can, and when you're waiting, if you're waiting for RT to set up high flow, you can put on nasal cannula at and non-rebreather at the same time, and just be doing like, like flush rate O2 going into both of those to optimize that FiO2 that they're getting. Um, so that's one thing, minimizing hypercarbia, um, and then additionally. Uh, minimizing like hypo or hypervolemia. So these people are in right heart failure, which as we know is super fluid responsive. So if you have good evidence that they're volume down, you may wanna give them some volume back. Everything I read uh, described is that like, you need to be super, super ginger with these people. Um, so starting with like a 200 for an adult, like a 250 cc bolus of normal saline and seeing what happens to their hemodynamics. So in a kid or what are you pushing a flush syringe? And see? <laughs> right, just like a, a little whiff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, like, I mean 250 cc's in, a, in, a, in an adult is like less than 10 per kilo, way less. Yeah. It's like three per kilo maybe. So like ostensibly, yeah, that's like 15 small, small amount. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. And then, but they can also come in super hypervolemic, especially if they're an adult coming in with left heart failure, that's the cause of the right heart failure. Um, in which case you also want to diurese them, but you don't want to be too crazy about it. Um, this whole thing is basically like, I keep thinking of, do you watch Drag Race? Yeah. You know how RuPaul says, don't fuck it up? <laughs> that's like, that's a pH is. Like, you're <laughs> yeah, basically, it's, it's not, anything you do is going to fuck it up. Um, cool. So, but in this, so in this situation, it sounds like fluids would be a very reasonable first step. Mm-hmm. Right. Where we have a, like a reasonable story for, um, for hypovolemia. Um, you can definitely, I would definitely throw a probe on all these people as they come in. I mean, we do this on all of our hypotensive patients, basically. Although, in my reading, it, it looks like, basically, it's going to be a difficult ultrasound to interpret, especially if you have an adult with, like, chronic LV and RV failure who, like, their baseline echo might look real shitty, and what you see is not going to be, like, super meaningful in the moment, and the trending... Uh, ultrasounds and trending CVPs are going to be a little bit more meaningful in assessing volume size. So you're going to fuck it up, basically. There's like, it's nothing is, is going to break your way. Um, another big question is what pressors to use for these people. Um, there are, 
because ideally you're increasing contractility and cardiac output um, and so that you can effectively perfuse the RV because ischemia to the RV will make all of this worse. But you also don't want to increase PVR, so lots of our depressors that we use will, will cause the pulmonary vasculature to clamp down. So you need like total beta, basically. Like, so you can, you do need total beta, but you don't want them to be hypotensive because a lot of our total beta yeah, agents, like yeah. milrinone or um, or dobutamine, like will make you a little hypotensive. So the first line presser of choice that most people say is norepi. Um, comes just like everything, <laughs> exactly. Um, do not, under any circumstances, give phenylephrine, not that we like ever do, yeah. but just because that will very much increase your PVR and not get you a lot else. Um, another like sort of up-and-coming presser for pH, up-and-coming only in that there's more research on it um, coming out, is vasopressin. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, vasopressin would be like my like second choice yeah. because you it, there's like some evidence that it decreases PVR, and then um, it also will increase your afterload, which may be useful. So another tenet of physiology that you want to be thinking about is the interdependence between the LV and the RV. So if you have a big volume overloaded RV and you have the septum like bowing into the LV, you actually get worse LV filling um, and you get you like have less cardiac output. Yeah. which brings you down the spiral of doom again. So increasing, this was something I actually didn't find a lot in my reading about this, but this is something that the intensivists were very into, um, was vasopressin increasing your afterload, which like stents open your LV a little bit, almost like in a, someone with like hokum. Wait, it increases your afterload, but it doesn't increase PVR to... Like, yeah. Okay. So wow. that your so your SVR is going up, your LV is a little bit more filled, because yeah. it's filling against that afterload, and then you're having better cardiac output ultimately. And you were going to say it's like hokum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, or at least in how I'm thinking about yeah. it, that is. Um, great. So pressors, and then, it, and, and you milrinone and dobutamine, like, are, you can use. You want to probably, just like anytime you try to use those, you should probably have a, a real life yeah. presser by your side. And cards. Oh, definitely. No, I was going to say, so I was going to say, like, norepi, like, hanging or going. Um, some of the stuff I read said that you should just be starting with norepi, and if you want to try to add those on, there should already be, like, um, an alpha agonist going. Um, but you bring up something really important, which is number one, like before all this stuff we're talking <laughs> about, except for maybe putting on oxygen, call for help. This is like the ultimate yeah. call for help situation. Like there are people in the hospital at Moffitt and at Mission Bay and probably at the general too, who just do pH. Like that's their whole yeah. scope of medicine. They like, so, and they will know their patients really well yeah. and they'll also so be able to- So check the hubris and like yeah, get them, call them down there. Yeah. Immediately. Um, the other big thing I want to talk about is, so we have our choice of presser, we have them, we're trying to oxygenate them, and we just can't. How would you intubate oh, a patient God. like this? I don't know. Um, I mean, she's also an asthmatic, which is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I... I don't. I mean, so she's hypotensive, right? So mm -hmm. I'd be worried about giving anything that's gonna drop her blood pressure. Um, I, but I'm worried that like ketamine would increase her PVR, and so I don't know. I don't really know what sort of sedative you can use um, that's totally safe in a shocky. 
patient. Uh, I guess you can... I mean, Atomidate is fairly safe. Like, usually we only see a transient drop, so, like, I guess that would be my first guess of what I would do for for it. And then I I think you can paralyze, but you just have to be aware that, like, they could code at any moment during intubation, just like any sick patient. Yeah, totally. No, that's exactly right. Like, it's it's exactly the, like, tension that you're feeling in describing this is, like, correct, because it's just... This is another don't fuck it up situation where you're going to fuck it up no matter what you do. Um, so the other big thing is try not to intubate. Try try as hard as you can because when you intubate and they're getting positive pressure, that will, like, their intrathoracic pressure will go up, which will increase their PVR, and then their preload will go down, and they are likely to code and die. Um, but she I, came in intubated? She came in intubated, yeah, so we didn't... That had already happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Take out the two. (laughs) Oh, man. But um, some of what I read said Atomidate was a good option. Uh, Ketamine, if someone's really... I mean, if someone's really hypotensive, like, Atomidate will lower their blood pressure more. But, like, you're going to be pressing them anyway. It's a lose-lose. I actually didn't look up. I wanted to find if ketamine increased the PVR. Maybe I'll look that up in post and see if there's, like, any evidence about that. You'd think it would because it you increases think it would because it, SVR and, like... Right. Yeah. But, but who knows? Someone it's, like, kind of a miracle it. drug, so maybe it was, like... <laughs> it probably just fixes it <laughs> immediately. Um, and then what you said about not paralyzing was... Is, a, I think, a great idea and something that uh, people talked about also is trying, like, a pseudo-awake or some version of awakish intubation, yeah. intubation where the person is breathing the whole time and that avoids your hypercarbic episode, yeah. your apneic episode and makes that time minimized so that they're less likely to just uh, Is there, and I feel like I should know the answer to this because this is simple physiology, but like, is there a position that is better for the patient to be sitting in for PVR? Do you? Know? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. Like, it's flat working against you like should you be at 30 degrees we should look that up after. yeah we should yeah. that's that's a good question um one thing that came up with this patient is she was fairly obese so we actually did we tried to have her sitting up a little bit because the the like uh restrictive her just her like body habitus, yeah was pretty um, was was like giving her basically a restrictive disease as well and required a high peep to actually get her to like to um, FRC basically which was just like another thing working against us um, cool let's see what other deep thoughts do I have about pH oh I actually don't know the answer to this there are a ton of like specific drugs to treat pH all of which just like decrease PVR so inhaled nitric oxygen or excuse me nitric oxide um the endothelin receptor antagonists like bosentin the prostaglandin analogs like remodulin and then the pde5 inhibitors like sildenafil um some of those the prostaglandin analogs certainly are available iv and inhaled and then inhaled nitric is obviously available inhaled i don't know if how easy it is to get any of those to the ed we should ask, like, pharmacy yeah, what, we should what you pharmacy. actually can do. Because I was, I was dealing with a sick asthmatic the other day, and um, Debbie told me that we have Heliox. Yeah. And, like, I didn't even know that that was something I could call for or have. Yeah. And I, I imagine, like, I mean, if nitric oxide is available, 
I guess the downside in a shocky patient is you're gonna drop, you're gonna drop yeah. your blood pressure. But, but you're already like. But that might be a good if they're if yeah I don't know. Yeah, I if also thought crisis. I thought we couldn't get heliox, and then someone like whipped it out for someone that had this like crazy obstructive yeah. rare ride. So yeah, always as do as we say, not as we do, and learn what's available. Um, talk to Kurt. Talk to Kurt. Talk to Z. Talk to all of them. That's always the highest healed moment of my day. Sometimes I'll see <laughs> Kurt. I'll be like, not even like, like just coming into the ED for some random reason, and I'll be like, Hey, Kurt, I have these three questions I've been thinking. Yeah, about. I, I have really nothing. The other day, yeah. I was like, I have this question I've been asking so many attendings, and no one knows. Someone said it's a Z question. <laughs> so useful. What a resource. Wow. So that code sounds scary. Yeah, it is scary. I think that, yeah, I think that the, like, big things that are different are just going, like, I mean, because at the end of the day, you're still using Norepi, the pressor you know and love. You're still, you're just, you're going slower with volume. You're being more cautious about intubation, and you're prioritizing oxygen or oxygenating them probably more than you might in another patient, although, you know, you're always trying to pre-oxygenate anyone who's, like, looking towards being intubated, so I think ultimately, like, don't get paralyzed by fear and be like, oh, fuck, anything I do is going to kill this person, because while that's true, like, you're still going to have to do something. And in this girl, like, who had, she was, like, a a child with this, so she didn't have left heart failure, right? Mm -hmm. So could you just have slammed her with fluids? Like, would that have a downside? I think you can get worsening RV dilation, which then does decrease. Oh, yeah. De- yeah. Yeah. Stretches, myocytes, all that shit. Yeah, yeah right. I believe so. Um, she ultimately did get slammed with fluids, though. Oh, she um, did. The other big thing that we did, which probably won't come up in the ED, was trying to um, optimize her oxygen carrying capacity. So we, her fluid of choice was packed red cells. We gave her, wow. we transduced her to like a hematocrit of 40 or something. Um, just to try. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow, that sounds like a pretty freaky. Yeah, I feel like all my pulmonary hypertension on PICU is sort of like the kid with this, but also pulmonary hypertension. I didn't see any of the like really sick cases of that. So yeah, this was I was really like glad to have this this case because it was kind of like one of my like top five terrifying things it had, that it had mostly occurred before she came to us, but. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was good teaching. We're going to have to look up that other stuff. but Yeah, have a little list of things that we'll add. I mean, this is like, it is super interesting physiology, and it's important for us to like think about, because I feel like, I was thinking about, it wasn't about pulmonary hypertension, but I was thinking about some other issue the other day, and I was like, I don't think about it until like I see a patient with it, and I'm like, oh, fuck, I should have done a little I should have read all of Cinta Alley's, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think... It, this for me falls under the category of things that you're not going to figure out if you don't already know them. Like if someone comes in an extremis and they're, they have pH and they're really sick, if I haven't already thought about it... You're not going to go through the physiology. You're not going to go through the physiology. Yeah. You're going to be a little bit paralyzed with like the intensity of the situation and like you kind of already have to know what, what drugs to, yeah. to reach for. Well, it's good to know that Nora B is yeah, your friend. Totally. Almost always. So. Yeah. Man. All right. Do you want a little more beer before I. Yeah, start I think talking? we should have some more Duchess. Um, which it seems like you're starting to way, really like. 
What did you say? <laughs> it seems like you're starting to really like. Oh, I do like it actually. See. Yeah, you're right. Do you like my etched glass? I, uh, I do. Yeah. Mason jars. Yeah, there's another little EM pearl in these. Did Aaron make these? I made them at oh. Paul and Aaron's. The the pearl is. Do you know what I'm gonna say? No. That did you guys use hydrofluoric acid to make these? Oh, I yeah we did I think yeah. yeah. The like uh, glass etching stuff. Yeah. I thought that, you know, they that's like such a, like the classic boards question with hydrofluoric acid Calcium. and calcium. Yeah. I was like, when the fuck am I going to see someone who etches glass? They're amongst us it's even me. now. Yeah. I did see creatures cuz this one's kind of shit, but it's jellyfish. This one is actually very I'm looking at a sea turtle, which is very I think well done. Thank you. Not the easiest animal to choose. All right, so are you excited to hear about what topic you chose? I'm really excited. So I chose the topic of children who remember past lives. Mm. How do you, what do you, do you know anything about this? Have you ever like read about it or heard about it? A tiny bit. I like, I've heard like random stories about like little child that says something from past life and then turns out to be like there is some some person that matches the life that she's describing etc etc right so that's basically the crux of this is like that there's been enough cases of this and enough similarities among the cases that there's actually research being done into it um so basically what we're talking about to um, Grace sort of summed it up well, but the, I first heard about this and I went down a Reddit rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like parents of Reddit, what has your child said to make you think that they lived a past life? And there's some freaky stories on there, but it's basically the idea, um, it's the idea that kids, uh, almost always between the ages of two and six, uh, say things to their parents that make them think that like, that they lived a past life. And usually they're pretty explicit about it. They're like, before I was here, I was older and I died this way. Like, they'll, they'll tell their parents Kids shit are like so that. so freaky. Yeah. It's not the pH. <laughs> it's the past <laughs> life. I know. Oh, my God. I mean, it, imagine if your kid said that to you. I can't even. And, like, I'll, I mean, we'll go through some examples that are, are interesting. But basically, like, it's... Um, and so, like, sometimes parents, like, ignore it, and then other times, you know, they ask their kid a little more, and their kid uh, gives a little bit more detail. And then there have, like you said, been cases where the child provides enough information for the parents to identify a deceased person that um, that had all those characteristics. And in some cases, which we'll go into, the kids have met the family, the, like the surviving family of these people and all that. Oh um, so I'm getting a lot of this information from uh, the... And this is why I'm like blown away. This is on the med.virginia.edu. Like the UVA okay. like School of Medicine mm-hmm. has a research department on this subject. And it's this guy named... Um, What's his name? So there was this guy named Ian Stevenson who has unfortunately passed into another child, probably. <laughs> uh, and now there's this guy named Jim Tucker, and he like he runs this whole research department. He he like recruits families to like share their stories with him, and he has compiled uh, like a 
quite a bit of research on this and he's published statistics about like the prevalence of of the this and it's hard because like obviously it's just like a small sample size and there's a ton of bias but he basically some of the statistics that um are that are out there are that uh about 60 percent of the children are male so uh so i mean that's about half and half but um 70 percent claim they died a violent death mm. and 70 percent of the violent deaths are male which is the exact same ratio of male violent deaths to how many fight. kids are in this sample size i don't know if it says it in this but it's a lot. Is it 10? No, just kidding. No, just kidding. I think it's... I, well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. I should look it up after. But, I mean, it's enough that he's, like, getting... Like, yeah, he's yeah. getting legit coverage yeah. for this. Um, 90% of kids said that they were the same sex in the previous life. Hmm. And then um, the, this is the most creepy and interesting part. The median time between death and birth is 16 months. Hmm. Like, that's just, to me, is, like, they calculated how long it takes for the soul to pass between a dead person and a baby. And then um, and 20% of the kids remember what it was like to be, like, in between and wherever. And some of them describe it as, like, God's house or, like, I was in the sky before I was in mommy's belly, like, things like that. Um, so, so, like, here's just one story to kind of set the scene and then we can kind of talk about what this might be. Uh, but basically, the the story that's like in a lot of the articles is basically is um, uh, basically this kid. He was I think three or something. Was like woke up in the middle of the night with a night terror and was like clutching his chest and he was like my heart exploded when I was in Hollywood, and um, and then he kept saying like I used to be someone else and then he says like I used to. Um, like have daughters and I lived in California and then he like would talk about being in Hollywood and then um they were looking through these old Hollywood books and he pointed at this random picture and he said like that's George like I did a picture with him and then they found out that the guy in the picture's name was George and he was this like hmm. no-name actor that w- that was and then they identified and then he said that's me like another guy in the photo and then they like found out he was just this extra like that was in a movie and they basically like tracked down the surviving family and like Mm -hmm. they found out all the stuff information he gave was correct like he used to live on a street that was like very similar to the street that he said uh, he lived on and then um he met the and then they met the daughter and he like shut down when he met the daughter and said and then afterwards he was like her energy is different and then he stopped talking about it Hmm. isn't that interesting that's nuts. I wonder what that experience was like for the surviving family. Yeah. Probably a little freaky. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, everyone wants to have some connection to someone who's died. Who's, but I'm. I can only imagine like. What a, like there's so there's so many strange experiences to have with strangers, and that's that's up there. Yeah. Like, did they buy it? Um, I don't know if the family bought it. And I think a lot of families that they reach out to don't agree to meet with kids or whatever. I mean, would you? Like, um, I think I would for the curiosity of it or Mm -hmm. something. But, like, you're grieving. Well, or maybe it's years later. It's years later. Yeah, yeah. Around three years and 16 months. (laughs) But, like, 
I mean, well, actually, in that case, like, I think that was, like, an old-timey, like... Like, this wasn't, like, a recent death. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, actually, maybe it was. I think... I don't know. So, anyway, it's very interesting. Um, and they this guy's studying it, and he's trying to, like... Um, quantify it first of all but then like try to understand it a little bit better and he's getting a lot of funding for it is he a Um, child psychiatrist he's a psychiatrist yeah uh and it's interesting because like he talks about because apparently some people that have these experiences with their kids try to take their kids to hypnotists to like Hmm. get the to like get more information out of them about and on his website, he has a very strong warning against, like, don't do that. And he's saying because you can, like, do damage and you can, like, bring out a personality in your kid that might not go away or something. <laughs> it's a little scary. <laughs> I don't know. I, it does seem like you would be at risk of, like, sort of... Um, like, the hypnotist might be incentivized to sort of, like drum up like imagination yeah yeah and like to to validate imaginary play in a way that was like muddying the picture or making you believe things that were yeah even less true so they basically don't they basically say now to do that and and so i i i wonder what it's just interesting because a lot of these articles say that like You'd expect him to have a lot of pushback or people to be, like, skeptical mm-hmm. of this, but there has been very little scientific um, sort of scoffing at his at this research. Hmm. And I... And it's, you mean other than right now? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not scoffing at it, Gracie. You are. I know. <laughs> I, I just find it... I think it's cool that they're doing it because... It, I think it's cool. This is, like, a shared experience that a lot of people yeah. have. And, I mean, clearly, like, if it starts on Reddit, like, it's there. And, like, you, and he's sort of trying to see if it's real or not. Um, they have found that it, like, spans multiple uh, different religious faiths so I was gonna ask that it's it, like a lot of him because he's operating in the United States a lot of his subjects are Christian and don't believe in reincarnation and so a lot of them are actually hesitant to even like tell him the story because they're like kind of ashamed of it mm-hmm. or like they think that you know they, they just like don't want their kid to be telling people that they're reincarnated uh, they have found that, that worldwide it's higher prevalence in like reincarnation like uh, mm-hmm. cultures that believe in reincarnation have higher uh, rates of kids saying it, but it happens across faiths. Um, so I think like to cover the most common thoughts about what this might be. Um, so some are it's just like kids ha- are have strong imaginations and they see things, they're exposed to things, and then they just like say really crazy stuff. I think it's. It, that's just a little hard to explain in some of the situations where they identify like there's a person that's identifiable from the words that they're from the stories that they're, they're telling and if um, if they use like vocabulary and words that they like have had no exposure to which the, the, some of these stories have in common um, the the other thought is that this is like sort of a traumatic reaction or like mental mm-hmm. illness um that that's sort of been disproven because like a lot of these kids go on to be totally normal and not have any mental illness or any 
Um, the, and a lot of them actually, it, what's freaky about it is that like by the age of like six or seven, they like forget about all this and, mm-hmm. and like get involved in school and don't talk about it anymore. And that's when they start to like make new memories and forget their early childhood memories. And then, um, and then there's like the thought that there's some component of realness to this and what, why. And so he takes a scientific approach, which is like very hand wavy, but, um, it's interesting. So basically he uses quantum physics to explain it. And he says like consciousness is, so we, a lot of us operate under the idea that we live in this material world. We have brains and we create consciousness in the world around us from those brains. Um, but there are a lot of people in the scientific world that believe it's the opposite, that um, like consciousness creates the material world. So you don't need a brain to, like we are living in this world that's part of our consciousness. And, like, and, so, and so, there's, so basically when someone dies and, and they have, there's a lot of energy involved in, in their, who they were, that energy gets transferred to someone else um and that doesn't need to that doesn't need to like be a physical manifestation it's just like we're all part of this shared sort of consciousness and experience um and then he talks about this like really uh famous quantum experiment where light was i don't know if you know about it because you're an mit person but it's apparently really classic where light is observed to go through this like these slits and they were trying to see if light behaves like waves or particles and they found it's both but they also found that when you observe the light it behaves differently um and so it's like brought up a lot of um a lot of questions about like is our like is consciousness real like are we like we're able to influence the material world by like an observation um so he kind of uses that experiment to explain things so what are your thoughts right now? I my thoughts are I have two thoughts. One is that that expl- that explanation on its face is like more interesting than what I thought how that was like slightly more detailed and possibly believable than what I thought you were going to say. Which <laughs> I wasn't I didn't I didn't know what you were going to say. But like like that was like he's going for it basically and then thought two is like it kind of it it it's one of those things that like weird coincidences are gonna happen because there are so many people doing so many things like have you ever listened to the the this american life about coincidences or like read stories yeah yeah. about like ridiculous coincidences that happen like in a in a world with as many people doing as many things, like weird shit is gonna happen sometimes. That's just random chance. Yeah. Um, so that's my like, that's my top interpretation of this. But it's it's definitely like the question of what consciousness is is definitely an open question as far as I'm concerned. And like I I tend to be of the thought that. Like, I think we do produce energy that's not just physical energy. Like, we, I, I think people emanate, a, a, like, you basically get an impression from someone and they're emanating some sort of energy and there's some people in life that have a lot of energy and, um, and whether that be joy or, or whatever, 
And so a lot of these articles kind of say, like, where does that go? Like, what, where does that go when they die? Because there's supposed to be conservation of energy in our world. And so, like, when these people who are, like, and especially in violent deaths where there's, like, a lot of just, like, feeling and, and, um, and sort of passion that happens around those situations, where does that go? Uh, and so that that's a lot of the people that are commenting on this are like that's sort of what makes it believable in their minds that even though like the actual it doesn't really make any sense to the way we think about the physical world but um, it's I, I agree I think it's interesting that he's trying to scientifically explain it rather than like just religiously or I don't know mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting it's like I think partially because I feel like maybe we've talked about this before on the podcast, but like, well, my like, maybe it's partially because my family is like a little bit woo woo. Um, so I, yeah, your dad's Buddhist. Right? Yeah, which which not to equate being Buddhist with being woo woo. No, but like, for our but listeners, does he believe in he does believe in reincarnation? Yeah, yeah, and like, which is that's why I was interested to talk to you about this. Yeah, I think. It's really hard to, like, well, top thing A, it's really hard to, like, talk about religion and think about religion without thinking about, like, the dramatic abuses of power in religion. Like, I have a lot of trouble separating that. Yeah. that aside. But also, <laughs> but, like, I think, I think, like, it's, it's nice to live a very scientific life, but also have open-mindedness about what could possibly be happening that hasn't been described. Like, what in the world occurs that we haven't observed or we're just we've just observed like little flashes of and don't fully understand yeah yeah and I think that that's and and that's sort of what well I don't know I, I think that's why religion partly why religion exists right like that's uh, to make up an explanation <laughs> yeah things we get like, like for, the, for like seeing the unexplained and like trying to ascribe meaning to it and sometimes it has like things have no meaning like but it's just I just find that there's a mystery in this that's pretty interesting like Mm -hmm. that kids because like little kids have so many imaginations but like if if you're like the hairs on the back of your neck are like that was like creepy like that's not just normal like kid play that is me I don't know I would be like I need to learn more but they say there's an advice page on the University nice. of Virginia website and they say don't ask pointed questions because the kid you're more likely to have the kid make something up hmm. and they also say like a lot of these kids exhibit signs of PTSD like wow not like lasting but they exhibit sort of stress around the wow the, and so they have a lot of feeling around these things so mm-hmm. you should just kind of be like that must be hard like kind of yeah. like when you learned a doctor or like do you remember anything more like nothing that's yeah. like how did you like what happened right like this yeah. the same way you would treat someone telling you about a traumatic yeah. experience that's interesting I have one, like, freaky child story Ooh. that may be relevant. Um, I was at summer camp in, in like, rural Vermont when I was probably, like, 13, and we were taking care of children that were, like, young school-age children, which is, it's a separate question, <laughs> um, but I was walking in the dark in the woods with this very young kid, um, 
and I had him like get up and I'm like piggyback and we were gonna walk like up to where our camp was and it was like in the dark the woods there are no lights there's there was a, a big moon at least and so we could kind of see and I probably had a flashlight but it was there was no one else around and the kid I'm, I'm so excited <laughs> and the kid the kid says to me he's like wait slow down our friend can't keep up with us what the fuck? And I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, yeah, no, like, he was, he was like, you're walking too fast. My, I wait for my friend. And there were no one else around, no other children, like, so this was obviously a little bit disconcerting. I would have so, started running. So I, like, keep walking, and I'm like, this is probably trying not to freak out. And he kind of keeps, like, referencing it, and it was very frightening. But ultimately, it turned out that he was talking about the moon. <laughs> oh. Wait, actually? Yeah, he was like, my friend, and then points up at, like, the full moon. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh. Because imaginary friends are, like, a whole it's other so thing. so creepy. Like, that's, yeah. that's really creepy. Yeah. Um, yeah, kids. I think that, that, like, really, there's so much in little kids that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like we don't understand how those brains work. It's like it's like a first try at a brain. Like yeah, like isn't it? I mean, yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's like baby teeth. Like because yeah. then you like we turn six and like you are then a person that you remember. Like I don't know when's your earliest memory. Like three or four, I think. I think mine's from when I was four. Yeah, I remember breaking my arm. That was the first memory I think I have. But isn't that weird? Yeah. Like what happened before that? Yeah. I don't know. So, if you were in a path, if you were reincarnated, who... Like, who was my past life, yeah. most likely? I don't know. I think, I mean, probably, like, a pilgrim. This, the, well, you know, it's hard. I'm maybe just copying from my actual <laughs> actual ancestors. Well, a lot of these kids are like, I was grandma. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. That makes sense. So you think you were on the Mayflower? Yeah, or at least an early settler of Massachusetts. I think I was in the French Revolution as an aristocrat and was beheaded. Is that why you're still searching for your like path to, to royalty? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Trying to get back. Yeah, and that's why I'm afraid of guillotines. I really am afraid of them. I think that's like like sharks. It's like a normal thing to be afraid of. <laughs> that's true, yeah. But I'm not, I would never conquer my fear of guillotines by, like, putting my head in one. Yeah, I, that seems reasonable, too. <laughs> Do you ever see guillotines? One time I saw one at, like, the Wax Museum in New York City. Mm-hmm. And, like, started crying. Oh. Anyway. Anyway. So, send us your thoughts. I don't know. Yeah. What was your past life? What scary things have children said to you? Yeah, because, honestly, they're so creepy. Because, like... There's this Reddit thread, and this one's the this Reddit thread is kind of nice. Like it's like mostly stories like this. Like the kid said that they were grandma or whatever. But then there's like other Reddit threads, like creepy things that kids have said, and it will keep you up at night. It's so creepy. So check it out. <laughs> um, until next time. Yeah. We're gonna get pizza now. Oh yeah. We oh fuck yeah. We're gonna we're gonna probably finish this bottle of Duchess yeah before or during pizza yeah and then um, I don't know yeah it's a good Saturday all right happy Pride happy welcome new interns the saying Pride will like will make be like an opposite anachron anachronistic 
like marker of how early we recorded this if it takes like a month and a half for this to come out but happy pride anyway no no it'll come out i'm gonna report yeah this sound editing by edward grom for the first time yeah we'll see all right bye everyone bye This is Grace again with some corrections. So point one, the researcher who studies children who remember their past lives, uh, we couldn't find his, the number of children involved in his studies, but there was another researcher who studied more than 2,500 children. Point two, the question of ketamine and its effect on PVR is under hot debate in the anesthesia literature. Some people think that ketamine does increase PVR, but then there's there's evidence that it's totally, that it's safe at least to use in children with pH who are undergoing anesthesia. Um, so it's kind of a dealer's choice, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Point three, positioning and its effect on PVR. I found one paper in which people who were getting their right heart caths were in different positions and it seemed like their pulmonary artery pressures were increased when they were supine versus sitting upright. Um, point four, the normal oxygen saturation in kids with pH. There, We texted Dinah Wallen for this pearl. Um, it's basically, it, it may vary because a lot of kids with pH have concurrent uh, cardiac issues or other reasons to have pH that may affect their baseline oxygen sat, but usually it's reasonably high. Um, and is that my last point? All right, that's my last point. We're going to go get pizza.